Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we go back to school with West Virginia women who are training to fill the shortage of construction jobs. All of the men in my family are tradesmen. Dad always said, I work this hard so you don't have to. And what he didn't realize, and I don't think I realized at the time, is I loved it. And EMTs and first responders make it their work to take care of Appalachian communities. But who's watching out for them? Mental health is, is if we talk about retention and, and keeping folks in EMS, and, and not just EMS, we can just say first responders across the board. If we're going to talk about retention, mental health is, is, is a huge issue that we've just never spoke about. We'll also talk with country music star Morgan Wade about what it's like to play Nashville one week and return to your hometown stage the next. There's always going to be something special about coming back home. You know, this past year, doing the, you know, the country store and be able to be pretty one-on-one with people. And I got to shake everybody's hand and stand there and thank them for coming out. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. A couple years ago, Congress passed a massive infrastructure bill. It devotes $1.2 trillion, that's trillion with a T, to pay for roads, bridges, and more across the country. Now, infrastructure is super important in Appalachia for living, working, and getting around in the mountains. But all these projects take people. And a lot of times, there just aren't enough people to fill all the jobs, especially in certain trades that require skilled labor. As Chris Schultz reports, West Virginia aims to meet the need by training more workers, particularly women. Carpenter's apprentice, Brooke Moyle, always knew she wanted to make things. I love working with my hands. I like creating something. I like seeing my efforts build something. Moyle is a motivated person. She rode an electric bike from Fairmont to Elkins to make sure she made it to the first day of her apprenticeship. But Moyle says she didn't think she had a chance at being a carpenter. Or at best, her dream was on the back burner while she worked other jobs in telemarketing or at McDonald's. That is, until she found West Virginia Women Work. They go through specific training courses. They go through almost all the trades, and then you get to kind of at least have the skills to pick something. If you do graduate from the program, you are kind of like put above the stock for anyone who did not and, and tried to like get into a union or a job or anything. because. Um, They have the connections to make that happen. Founded in 2000, West Virginia Women Work helps women explore, train, and secure employment in non-traditional occupations, especially the skilled trades. Carol Phillips is the executive director of West Virginia Women Work. Especially in West Virginia, you know, a four-year degree isn't for everybody. And just learning about, um, especially for women, the skilled trades, um, which maybe they didn't learn about in school or at home just to do gender roles, teaching people that you can come through this pre-apprenticeship program, you can join union apprenticeships, private apprenticeships, enter directly into the skilled trades positions and make, you know, twice what you might make as a nursing assistant or even a school teacher, just letting women know that there's opportunity. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is bringing millions of dollars for development into the state. Earlier this month, Governor Jim Justice announced $500 million for improvements to bridges across West Virginia. There are also several newly announced major construction projects, like the Nucor plant, that will need workers to make them a reality. For Phillips, the trained people from West Virginia Women Work are an obvious choice. We work with companies, unions, groups, and on their equity planning. If you're going to need 500 workers for something in the next six months, where are you going to get those from? We want those to come from West Virginia. If you're saying the workers aren't here, maybe you need to look at a more diverse group of workers. West Virginia Women Work prepares women for those roles through the Step Up for Women Construction Program, a tuition-free, employment-based, skilled trade training program designed to prepare adult women for entry-level positions in the construction industry and registered apprenticeships. Nicole Stevenson is the Charleston Program Coordinator for Step Up for Women Construction Training. Before going through the program herself, Stevenson was in healthcare for 10 years, but wasn't happy. Despite being exposed to the trades her entire life, she never considered it an option for herself. All of the men in my family are tradesmen, every single one. You know, I held the flashlight for every man in my, in, in my family. You know, my dad always said, I work this hard so you don't have to. And what he didn't realize, and I don't think I realized at the time, is 
I loved it. I loved it. Choice is an important aspect of the program for Stevenson. Program students cycle through training in carpentry, electrical, plumbing, and welding so that they can figure out what trade works best for them. This is a non-judgmental zone. So if you can hold a hammer, we teach you the proper way to do it. You don't walk onto a job site and she doesn't know what she's doing. What we do as coordinators is really work with the students and watch them and see where, like, their gifts are and, you know, what they really tend to do well and they find enjoyment in. It's not, well, I'm an electrician because my dad was an electrician. It's choices. We show them so many things. Building confidence is baked into the program. Students are also coached on what Stevenson calls soft skills, things like interviewing and budgeting for delays in the weather-dependent construction industry. Lakeisha Hines is the Morgantown program coordinator for Step Up for Women Construction. Like Stevenson, she also went through the Step Up for Women Construction program while seeking out a more promising professional future. Of course, we want to get the safety with the OSHA 10 out of the way first. So we make sure that they are safety conscious because that's the most important thing when you're working in construction. Um, And then we kind of sprinkle in um, some of the soft skills along with um, the hands-on portions of the program. Students also get a chance to visit project sites and speak to program graduates. Hines says it helps students see the future they're working towards past their 12 weeks of training. I think it's empowering to them to see where somebody started and a lot of those people have the same stories. A little bit, it starts with them actually applying and knowing that they can do the work too. Our program gets their self-confidence up, um, lets them know that they can do it. And I'm, I'm hoping that these women tell their daughters that they can do it. And it's just like a trickle-down effect. The next program in Charleston and Morgantown starts February 27th and is currently accepting applications. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. This is Wilder Days, the first track on the country album Reckless by Virginia artist Morgan Wade. The album was released in 2021 and became a hit, charting at number 14 on Billboard's Heat Seekers charts. For years, people in my hometown of Floyd, Virginia have been buzzing over Wade. First as a talented musician playing locally, and then again when she started to rise in country music. She toured all throughout the last two years, including a run opening for Chris Stapleton. At one point, she played Nashville's famed Ryman Auditorium, long known as the home of the Grand Ole Opry, and then a few days later came back to play the Floyd Country Store, a tiny venue here that hosts the Friday Night Jamboree. Morgan Wade, thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia and speaking with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you've been all around the country and played, you know, famed venues like the Ryman Theater in Nashville. But you keep coming back to local places like the Floyd Country Store and Floyd Fest. What's that like to, to kind of balance between traveling around the world and, and coming back to where you grew up? There's always going to be something special about coming back home. You know, this past year, doing the, you know, the Country Store, I mean, it was it was really incredible, too, to do it that way, um, such a small setting, and be able to be pretty one-on-one with people. And I got to shake everybody's hand and stand there and, you know, thank them for coming out. But it was like, you know, uh, like a trip down memory lane. You know, a lot of these people I haven't seen in years. So every time I come back home, I I feel, you know, a little more grateful for, for all those people. And especially, you know, after traveling everywhere, I really realized I was blessed uh, to grow up in the setting that I grew up in. So how does the touring change your conception of home? Do you, do you still think about it much the same way you did or, or has, has putting all this miles under your belt changed the way you think about the mountains? It, you know, growing up in a small town, you know, you're, you, you kind of get a little stir crazy and, and you're like, you know, there's nothing to do here. And, 
you want to you want to leave and you want to go somewhere else. But as I've gotten older, uh, I love the simplicity of a small town and, you know, traveling everywhere. While I do love, you know, going to new cities and, and I love places like L.A. and, and Nashville, coming back home to this, that familiar, easygoing place is a really good feeling. So I, I feel like traveling around a lot and being in the, you know, the hustle of things. I really do appreciate going back to, you know, a place where, you know, on Mondays, there's not much that's open, just stuff like that. You know, to me, I, I enjoy it. So you grew up here in Floyd and, and inside Appalachia and Appalachia is known for its music. And so is Floyd. How did coming up in that culture affect your approach to songwriting and how you write music? Yeah. Um, so obviously I, I talk about the Floyd country store a lot. Um, I love that place. I, I spent most Friday nights uh, with my grandfather up at the the Floyd Country Store, and on because on Friday nights, you know, they have the bluegrass music, and people are out on the streets playing, and you know, it's just a really good time. So, I, you know, I that was my first introduction to live music, and you know, obviously, I don't play bluegrass music, but the thing about bluegrass, take the instrumentation out of it just focusing on the lyrics. I mean, they'd be singing these extremely sad, dark songs, but, you know, it's not sounding dark. It's sounding happy with the banjo music with it. So I always, I would always listen, you know, to that and connect with, with a lot of the words, you know, they were, they were singing about, I mean, people don't, sometimes I don't think they pick up on it, but I'm like, they're, they're singing about smoking and drinking and, and, you know, failed relationships and dark stuff like that. But you don't really, you know, a lot of people don't really see it that way, but I'm like, I'm such a lyric person and always have been. So, you know, that was my first introduction to live music. And, you know, I, I really, I think as a person that does focus on lyrics, uh, I, I took a lot away, uh, from that. Can you tell me about the new single uh, that come out? Um, is it the night part one and two? And and uh, tell me a little bit about where that where those songs came from. Yeah, so the night part one came out. Uh, I think May of twenty nineteen. The the original one. It's the first song I cut with the my producer you know, Sadler Baden, and that was a song that I had written. Basically, uh, as soon as I got sober, so it was still a little old for me, even in 2019 when it came out, but it, it was the first, you know, song that I wrote about my sobriety and dealing with my mental health. And it was just one of those that I sat down and I recorded it on my phone, just a video in my room. And I didn't think I would do anything with it, but I ended up putting it online and then that video blew up, you know, that kind of, it really took off. And I didn't expect that because I, it was so personal to me that I didn't expect other people to really connect with it. And so of course they did. And, and I ended up, you know, two years later, uh, cutting it in the studio with Sadler. And so that's just been one of the the oldest songs of mine that people always gravitate towards and they go back to. And, you know, when I'm playing shows, The Night is one of the songs that's, you know, people are singing along just as loud to that one as they are Wilder Days, you know, that was on the radio.
Night Part 2 about a year and a half ago, and it was just the continuation of where I'm at. So, you know, I'm not in the same place that I was in when I wrote The Night, but I still have those struggles. You know, I talk about I still have these dreams where I'm taking shots, you know. So I am five years into my recovery, but I'll still have these dreams that I relapse. And it'll take me a while after I wake up to really realize, oh, that was a dream. And, you know, I travel a lot now and I love it, but it's hard sometimes when you've been on a tour and you've been gone for two months to come back home and really be able to relate to the people around you and be able to kind of, come back down from that, you know, essentially that high that you've had on the road. But my main point of that song was just like, while things do get better, there's still struggles. No matter what part of your life you're in, no matter where you're at in your journey, you're still going to have struggles while it does get better. You know, it's growth and and mental health. It's not linear. You know, there's a lot of ups and downs. and, And so, while the music with it sounded different, the instrumentation is different. It's just the evolution of where I am going and what I like to do now. Uh, the main purpose of that song was just really putting it out there, where I'm at and what I'm feeling. I wanted to ask about another lyric on other side. Um, you knew my skin back before I had all these tattoos. And now it seems like a lot of people recognize you because of your tattoos and that iconic album cover. How did you start getting tattoos and what's your relationship with them now? Yeah, so I, I grew up uh, in, a, in a, you know, Southern Baptist church. And uh, so tattoos was not something that they uh, promoted, obviously. And so I grew up really thinking that tattoos were really bad. And I stuck with that for a long time. I was just like, I could never get a tattoo. You know, why would you, why would you do that? And then I went to college and I was a freshman. Everybody I knew pretty much had at least one tattoo. You know, it wasn't uncommon. And I don't know, I started just kind of like looking at them in a different light. And uh, my friend, she was just like, hey, I think you would like to get a tattoo. I think if you got one, you'd see it's not that bad being just a broke college kid, you know, the real smart thing to do is to go spend what little money you have on a tattoo and uh, went over to a tattoo shop in Roanoke and got my first tattoo. And then I'm pretty sure it wasn't even a month later, I went and got three more. And then it was just on from there. And, uh, you know, I promised my mom, I'm like, you know, I, I won't get any past the elbow. And then it, you know, then it became a sleeve and then it became my hands. And here we are, you know, I, I've got quite a few, but, you know, I, I, you know, I get a lot of, it's, it's, I'll have a lot of people be like, oh my gosh, I love your tattoos. And then I'll have, you know, the people that'll be like, you know, they'll have something smart to say about it. But at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't care. These are, uh, I've got, you know, it's, it's kind of like with my songs it's uh i've gotten all these tattoos at a different place in my life and this song i enjoy doing and i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stop what's next for you you know you you've worked hard and and achieved this kind of breakthrough success what are your ambitions for the next record and beyond that i'm almost finished with writing the the next record we uh i'm actually going to write a couple days this week and uh, I think right at the beginning of next year, I'm going to go in the studio. I've cut half the record already, but I think there's a lot of pressure because Reckless did so good. Um, I don't, you know, that you put that that next record out and there's a lot of eyes on that. So that that for me is the big thing is, you know, getting that next record out there. And I've got a big, almost completely sold out tour starting next year in about February. And so I'm going to be busy. I'm going to be really busy. I think I'm going to take me a a little two week vacation in January, go somewhere really warm. And uh, after that, it's, it's game on. Morgan Wade, good luck on this next album and good luck on this big tour next year. Thank you so much for coming on Inside Appalachia. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. That's Morgan Wade 
originally from my home, Floyd County, Virginia. Her 2021 album is Reckless. You know my skin back before I had all these tattoos. You remember me on late nights from half of pills and booze. We've had some bad times, baby, but we had some good times too. Later in the show, we revisit our 2015 interview with poet Nikki Giovanni, who talks about why she chose to express herself through poetry. People of my generation, we, we all, you know, picketed it and we did the things that, that one should do, and that was a good thing to do, but I also just had these dreams and, and I wanted to share them, and I had these ideas, and I, I kept thinking, something is missing. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. <laughs> Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. It's getting harder to access good health care here in Appalachia. Hospitals and clinics are closed, making for farther drives. But it's not just medical providers. There are shortages in emergency medical services, too. It's a hard job. There's a fair amount of churn. Experienced EMTs and paramedics leave the field to take less stressful jobs. Often it can be difficult to find and train people to replace them. That can mean plenty of overtime and more trauma for the EMTs who remain. And that amplifies the already dire need for mental health support. Randy Yowie has the story. Bridgeport Director of Emergency Management Tim Curry recently wrote an article in the National Journal of Emergency Medical Services entitled, Suck It Up Culture is Killing First Responders. He writes that he had answered a call like a hundred others, an interstate wreck that killed a young girl. You know, I was looking through her phone and seeing the text from her mom, saying, hey, you know, why aren't you home yet? Um, where are you at? I'm worried. That was just, it hit me really hard. And I had seen things that were way worse than that up to that point. But that was like the point I got to where it was too much and I had to step away. The post-traumatic stress overwhelmed the veteran EMT. Curry turned to alcohol, forsaking the long-standing suck-it-up first responder mantra before realizing he needed help. Realizing that hey, this is not normal and, and I needed to, to talk to somebody was was a hard journey for uh, somebody that's always been, you know, I'm, I'm okay, I'm tough, I, I can handle it. 
I don't need any help, all that jazz. So looking in the mirror and saying, hey, I need to deal with this uh, was a, a long journey to get to. Nationally, more than 100 first responders committed suicide in 2021, more than died in the line of duty. West Virginia has lost more than 1,900 EMTs over the past three years. While recruitment and retainment efforts are ongoing, Curry says his overworked colleagues need more mental health support and outlets to deal with the trauma. They need to know that it's okay to, to need to take a break, and it's okay to not be okay, and it's okay to need to talk about it with somebody. Uh, they need to have healthy coping mechanisms, you know, good diet, exercise, um, hobbies, things that are outlets for your stress from the workplace uh, to go and do something, you know, whatever it is, play golf, go skiing, um, go hiking, whatever it is to go blow off that steam uh, in a healthy way. West Virginia Emergency Medical Director Jody Ratliff takes personal calls from traumatized first responders needing to talk to someone who knows the feeling. He says more mental health support is paramount to leaving that suck-it-up mentality behind while moving forward. Mental health is, is, if we talk about retention and, and keeping folks in EMS, and, and not just EMS, we can just say first responders across the board. If we're going to talk about retention, mental health is, is, is a huge issue that we've just never spoke about, um, and it affects you over time. It affects your, your, your physical ability, your mental ability, and then people want to leave the business because they just can't handle it anymore. It's just too much for them. Ratliff is looking at West Virginia adopting an EMS mental health support program and app now seeing success in Florida. First responders across the state can go into this app and they, they, they plug in some, some things on how they're feeling that day or, or something that might have just happened. And it might say, you know, reach out to someone in the next few days, or it might put you in contact with the mental health professional right then and there. Tim Curry calls setting up a mental health support app an excellent first step. You know, the fact that people are waking up to this and, and doing something about it now uh, speaks volumes to where we're at versus where we've been. We're seeing the effects of long-term burnout and long-term um, issues with dealing that everything that first responders see. And we're facing a massive paramedic shortage now because we neglected this problem for a long time and we told people to suck it up. There needs to be better access to mental health care, you know, to get good mental health care covered by your insurance. These agencies need to do a better job of saying, hey, we're going to cover this. Uh, we're going to even employ somebody in help in house, which is what uh, the city of Huntington's doing. Ratliff says he's working with the MS directors across the state to get the suck it off monkey off of everybody's back. It's okay to talk about the stigma. It's time for the stigma to go away. We all deal with this, whether we want to admit it or not. It's something that we've all dealt with in our careers. And I speak very publicly about you know uh, about me dealing with my own in, in during my career. And, and me getting help and what it meant to me in my career and my life. Tim Curry says a quarter of West Virginia EMS workers report mental health issues, and those are only the ones who admit it. He says it is past time to go from suck it up to stand up and deal with the issues. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yoey in Charleston. So I'm in my 40s. A lot of my friends and I are dealing with raising children at the same time we're taking care of our parents. That's especially true here in Appalachia where we have tight-knit families and an aging population. That's tricky to begin with, but it gets more complicated for loved ones with chronic health problems, declining mobility, and dementia. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Eric Douglas is exploring questions about caring for others as they get older. In this first installment, he talks with Dr. Lynn Goebel, a Marshall University professor who works at the Hanshaw Geriatric Center in Huntington. Help me understand what's going on in somebody's mind or what's happening when, um, when Alzheimer's, dementia, when those, those sorts of things start happening. From a pathologic point of view, I can tell you that uh, 20 years before someone develops symptoms, they have stuff going on in their brain. Oh, interesting. So you're already developing these amyloid plaques in the brain. Uh, and then usually someone will start noticing that they're having some trouble with their memory. There's usually their short-term memory and they may still be functioning well. <clears throat> and that uh, we call mild cognitive impairment. And it's a precursor uh, sometimes to the full-blown dementia. And that stage lasts about five years where someone has some problems. They know they have trouble 
but they're still able to get it together and they use, you know, lists and other things, their, their smartphones uh, to help them keep on track and, and function well. This is a, a layer or a plaque that's forming within the brain that's causing the brain to misfire effectively. I mean, is it? Probably. And then there's also uh, the next stage where you have actual uh, buildup of protein inside the neurons or the nerve cells. And this particular protein is toxic and it kills the cells. So as the disease progresses, you're going to have death of these nerve cells. And that's where people lose function and they lose memories. Okay. So the, the plaque is the first stage, then the, this, this protein buildup uh, is, is kind of a secondary stage, that's, but really is where the, the trouble is, sets in. We're still in the, we, you know, finding out exactly what causes this disease. And uh, initially, you know, we thought, oh, if we get rid of this plaque, then we would be able to cure this disease. Well, some of the drugs that are out there uh, that they're still studying uh, are, are targeting that, but we're not seeing the results that we hoped for. In, uh, in people with early stage disease, we may be seeing stabilization, but we still need to do more study on that kind of drug. Is there a test for this? I mean, is there any way to know definitively early on or is it something you suspect? And So right now we diagnose this clinically. So you'll go to a specialist, which could be either a geriatrician or a psychiatrist or a neurologist. And that would be the kind of doctor that would do this specialized testing. And, uh, you know, we, we do memory tests. And we also look at the patient and see how they're functioning, because that functioning part is is also key to making a diagnosis of actual dementia, as opposed to that mild cognitive impairment thing. Does that help any to, to have that kind of diagnosis by, by some kind of test? Is, is, that, is there any reason to do that versus the, the progression? I mean, there, yes. even if you found out 20 years before the significant onset, we don't really have any medications to treat it. There's no, there's nothing, there's no surgery to remove it. So they did a study where they did this amyloid PET scan on people. And the people that we found out that had probable Alzheimer's disease based on that study, based on that scan, we did treat them differently. We gave them more medications. Families were able to plan better for the future. And I think it did make a difference in those patients. So I I think it is a good thing to try to get that diagnosis made. Now, as far as uh, disease-modifying treatments, we don't have that right now, but I think it's in the near future. Let's talk about caregivers for a moment. What... As a geriatrician, I assume that that's one of your, you're also working with the families and so what do families need to know? What do caregivers need to know? I always recommend the Alzheimer's Disease Association. They have an 800 number that's 24 hours. So if you have a, a crisis situation, you can call and talk to someone who, who can possibly help you right at that moment. They also have a wonderful website with all kinds of very important information on there. And depending on the stage of the patient, uh, they can help with a variety of things. Uh, Such as in the early stages, you want to do some planning and make sure you have um, all your legal paperwork and power of attorney in place. Uh, And also make plans for yourself as far as being able to say what you want to happen in the event that things get worse. And then later on, there's other, you know, other stages of disease where you're dealing with communication issues. And the caregivers really need training on that. We know that medication for behaviors is not great. In fact, certain medications can increase the risk of death in people with dementia. So we try to get caregivers to take training 
and to learn how to get around certain behaviors. For instance, if a patient is not wanting to take a bath, which happens very regularly, um, you know, how, how can you deal with this in a way to get the patient to do it, but uh, that's not going to be horrible for everyone? So, uh, so there's, there's a lot of training out there for caregivers. That was Dr. Lynn Goble from the Hanshaw Geriatric Center. Eric Douglas will be doing more interviews in this series called Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents. Find out more on our website, wvpublic.org. A lot of people flee indoors when winter hits. Trees drop their leaves, sky can be overcast, and it's just cold. But winter still offers plenty of opportunities to learn more about nature. Kara Holsapel with the Allegheny Front has this story about trees. I'm terrible at identifying tree species. So when I saw that Tree Pittsburgh, a nonprofit that looks to protect and restore the urban forest, was holding a tree identification walk in early December, I asked to tag along. The walk starts at the entrance gate of the historic Homewood Cemetery in Pittsburgh's East End. It's gray and blustery as I meet our guide, Joe Stavish, Tree Pittsburgh's education director. Winter's a great time to look at the silhouette of trees, so a lot of trees have different shapes to them, which are hidden by the leaves in the summertime. The roughly 200-acre cemetery is an accredited arboretum, one of only 23 cemeteries in the United States with that designation. Stavish reminds me and about a dozen others who joined the walk to stay out from under big branches when the wind kicks up. The first trees that I'm going to point out here that do have leaves on right now, um, these are conifers. Conifers are cone-producing trees. Uh, This tree here does have green leaves on, but these are not needles. These are considered scale leaves. And you can feel free to come up and look closely at them if you're not sure what I'm talking about. But picture like fish scales or scales on a snake or scales on a bird's leg. Anyone know what this tree is? A lot of people plant these at their homes, but they usually have them when they're much, much smaller. These are a tree that we call arborvitae. The challenge is that deer love to eat arborvitae in the winter time. You need to put up some kind of a deer screen around them in the winter months, uh, and then you can take it down for the rest of the year. So we're going to go over and look at one of the larger trees, which is right through here. So in the winter time, we have to be like nature detectives and we have to figure out what can we look at to identify a tree in the winter time. We can look at bark, but that's actually really challenging for a lot of our tree species because it looks so similar. Leaves on the ground might have been blown by the wind from another tree. Stavish says to look close to the trunk for a better chance of identifying the right leaves, seeds, or pods. And so if I come up against this trunk and I look around, um, I see lots of acorn caps. And so what type of tree would have an acorn cap? Oaks. So this is our northern red oak. Stavish says there are only two families of oak, red and white. So when we look at oak leaves, if the lobes are pointed or have bristle hairs on them, that means that that tree is in the red oak family, no matter where you go in the world. If those lobes are rounded and do not have any of those bristle tips, it's in the white oak family. Another way to ID trees in the winter months is by their branch, bud, and leaf patterns, which can be either opposite or alternate, Stavish says. During the walk, he steps under a tree without its leaves to point out the easy trick. When I walk up to this one, I can see one large bud on the end, but then I see two smaller buds here, and they're opposite of each other. I want you to remember the term mad horse. Mad horse will remind you of the trees in Pittsburgh, the trees in Pennsylvania, that have opposite leaves, opposite buds, like this one. M is for maple, A is for ash, D stands for dogwood, and chestnut stands for... So this is a horse chestnut here. They also have the opposite leaves, opposite branches. Stavish shows us about 20 different tree species in all. Varun Ravindran is getting a lot out of the walk. These visceral identification marks is what I was looking for, and that's exactly what I'm learning now, and it's fantastic. And it just makes you feel closer to trees. It's like identifying another person. Oh, I see you. Thank you all for coming out there. Uh, enjoy trees throughout there. You do not need to give me a round of applause. Thank you so much. Joe Stavish is the education director at Tree Pittsburgh. They hold tree ID walks each season. So to learn more and see some photos, head to alleghenyfront.org. I'm Carol Holsopel. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. 
Want to learn more about trees? There are arboretums all over Appalachia, including in Johnson City, Tennessee, Asheville, North Carolina, and Morgantown, West Virginia. Last fall, Appalachian poet Nikki Giovanni announced her retirement from Virginia Tech after 35 years. Of course, her pop culture prominence goes back even further, to her appearances on the television program Soul in the 1970s. She's a true Appalachian original, and one of our all-time great poets. In 2015, reporter Liz McCormick spoke with Giovanni about her love of Appalachia. Their conversation begins with Giovanni reading a poem named for her native city, Knoxville, Tennessee. I always like summer best. You can eat fresh corn from Daddy's garden, and okra and greens and cabbage, and lots of barbecue and buttermilk and homemade ice cream at the church picnic, and listen to gospel music outside at the church homecoming, and go to the mountains with your grandmother, and go barefooted and be warm all the time, not only when you go to bed and sleep. I'm a Knoxvillian by birth, and I I spent... uh, most of my summers with my grandmother, and then I actually moved in uh, with my grandparents. So, yeah, I, I love this. I love that poem, too. And can you talk a little bit about, in terms of Appalachia, um, how does this poem mean to you? I just love it because, you know, there was always a garden. You always had something uh, that, that you were... That, that your parents were growing, and I grew up being used to or having uh, having gardens, and uh, of course I grew up also cooking with my grandmother, and grandmother would, you know, we'd go out and pick a tomato or go out and pick some peppers or, you know, we'd always have something that we were putting from the garden into the food that we were actually eating, so it always made uh, sense to me. I don't do, and I guess I shouldn't say that, but I don't do fast food. I don't uh, I know that whatever I do with a drive-through in a car is not food, so I don't do that. You know. Um, and so we don't have your poem uh, "When God Made Mountains" to recite, but could you talk a little bit about it? And if you remember any specific parts of it that stick out to you, if you could just talk a little bit about that poem. Well, I am actually a um, a history major, so I'm always been inter- I've always been interested in how things evolve, and in always and, and in thinking about West Virginia particularly. Uh, we cannot look at the history of the United States without recognizing the importance of West Virginia seceding from Virginia. The Civil War would have been an entirely different affair if the uh, Union had lost control of these mountains, and and we know that. And uh, I, I just, uh, when God made mountains, uh, I, I wanted to deal with what why he was deciding to do that, aside from fresh water and stuff. He had to make a place, and, and of course you can't talk about the United States without talking about runaway slaves. And without these mountains, you know, this was the one place, West Virginia, that what became West Virginia, was the one place that a runaway slave, let's say you were coming up Alabama, you could come up and you could follow the water, and you could follow the water north. And in following the water north, you're going to get up here. Actually, as you know, West Virginia is quite rich, and yet West Virginians have not benefited from that. Almost everybody in the world has benefited from the richness of, of this state, from, from its wood to its uh, forest to its oil to, to any number of things that are here. And yet West Virginians have not benefited from that. What was the initial kind of push for you to decide to express yourself through poetry in, um, in your, what you stand for, in your activism, and just expressing yourself. Why was it poetry that you chose? Uh, I really don't know. It's, it's just um, all I really know is what I dream and what I think. And, of course, people of my generation, we, we all, you know, picketed it, and we did the things that, that one should do, and that was a good thing to do. But I also just had these dreams, and, and I wanted to share them, and I had these ideas, and I... I kept thinking, something is missing. We have a um, uh, bastardized history of West Virginia that has to be corrected. And it's time that West Virginians realize that we can't let other people say what our history is. We have to look at what it is. And I know the same thing is true of black Americans, that we can't just look at what was done to us. We have to look at and what good came out of this. And I think we can, I don't think that, we can show that. And we show it through some things that are really quite easy. We show it through the banjo, because the banjo is endemic to uh, West Africa. And so the only way that anybody in Appalachia can play a banjo that knows a banjo is that Africans, or those who were enslaved, 
and escaping came up here. We know things like okra, you know, came from Africa. And, of course, I live in Virginia. I teach at Virginia Tech. And Virginia prides itself on being the peanut capital of the world. Well, peanuts are West African. And so whatever Virginia has learned about peanuts, they learned that through the people they enslaved. Continuing with kind of the idea of uh, with civil rights and, and, and activism and race relations, um, looking at today with kind of the things that have been going on, uh, police brutality, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the debate over the Confederate flag and much more. Can you share some of your thoughts on what's going on today in our country? Well, clearly some of it is sad. I have never understood the reason uh, that policemen need guns. I, I still don't. And, I, you know, oh, well, the crooks will do whatever, whatever. But you don't need power and authority. Nobody does. And I, I have disliked the idea of policemen having guns because they already have authority. And somebody could call in and say, well, you know, Nikki, if the cops don't have guns, somebody will shoot them. But if the cops don't have guns, then the citizens will protect them. There's no, there's no question about that. And when we start to look at, at the inner cities particularly, we know, or we should know, that one of the things we want is we want the policemen, or the police people, I should say, to have a partner. We, we know that we don't want just the white policemen to be out there, a couple of them, and then they're shooting people for no reason. Everybody's upset. We want a white and a black. We want a man and a woman. We want a, a, a continual uh, mix of who these people are, and as I said, we want them to be without um, without guns. The Confederate flag is, is uh, it's uh, a segregationist flag. This, what, what is being called the Confederate flag came up uh, actually as a response to the civil rights, which shows both stupidity about who we who we are as a nation and who we are as a people. If I had my way, starting first grade, I'm sure first grade, every American child would learn another language. And I think that every American child, and, and I'm just not trying to speak for the world, but I think that every American child should know how to swim. It, it's just something that uh, we should make sure that every every kid in America, and I don't know if we have to even wait till first grade for that one, you know, and we need to get those kids there to teach them how to swim because these are skills. I would like to see every American kid starting kindergarten, first grade, play some sort of instrument. I think it'd be great. Uh, and whatever instrument they want, whether it's a piano, whether it's a saxophone, it doesn't matter. And in a generation, we would have an American child that could go any place on earth and be at home. Do you think compared to when you started in the civil rights movement back in the 60s, how do you feel about of today? what's going on today to what you were working on back then? Life is always about the going forward. And I, th- I think that, that I, I grew up in segregation. And it was really, um, uh, it was. I had to laugh. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, I don't know now, five years ago. Some, you know, it's been a while. And I was invited to speak at the Tennessee Theater, Tennessean Theater, which is there on Gay Street, and it's now historic. But it was so wonderful because I remember when I wasn't doing the era of segregation, you weren't allowed. But you can't compare what we did 100 years ago, what we did 50 years ago, and how we're doing it. You have to say, are we approaching, are we uh, um, engaged in the questions of our time? And are we, well, we working, uh, if not to the best of our ability, to some of our ability to try to solve it? Mm-hmm. I think that that's, uh, I think that has to be dealt with. I'm a big fan of Black Lives matter because a lot of people have been casual about black lives. So someone, one lady up in Connecticut said white lives matter too, but nobody ever said, nobody said that it didn't. The, 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 we've been casual about what happens with black kids and with black, uh, with black people. We, we can look at our prisons and see we have just too many people in prison. And, and the, the thing that makes America, and I don't think we're great now, but I think we are on the cusp of a greatness. The thing that makes us potentially great is that we are allowing human freedom. Mm-hmm. That we are, in, 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 in 21st century, we're saying, yeah, you should be able to make some decisions about your life, and I should step back as long as you are a law-abiding citizen. You have a right to live your life, and it's so, it's so basic. It has nothing to do with what other people think, because when other people don't like it, they don't have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that simple. 
in your speech at Shepherd University, you had mentioned um, Appalachian happiness is very important. And I wanted to ask um, you to explore that a little bit more and tell me why you feel that way. Well, the thing that I admire, I don't, want to, I don't know if the term is going to be most, but certainly way at the top of my list, is I admire the fact that you stand for freedom. And I admire the fact that we in Appalachia, and I, I'm going to include myself in that, have a concept of enough. And that's a concept that we are going to have to actually be able to share and spread across this country because right now nobody has an idea of enough, which is why people are, are really being crazy to say, I want to be a billionaire. But actually, a million dollars is enough, maybe even something lower than that. But we in Appalachia have an idea of enough, that this is, I'm, I'm satisfied, I'm pleased, I have a family, I have a, a decent house, I'm warm, you know, whatever it is, we have a concept of enough. And that idea that Appalachia brings to us, and Appalachia brings it to our country, that idea is what has to permeate, has to permeate America. And I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this already, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. Do you feel like you're an Appalachian? Well, I'm, I'm a Knoxvillian by birth, so yes, I am. I, I, I don't have any problem with being an Appalachian, but I'm also an American, and I'm also an, 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 an earthling. And when we look at West Virginia, we are also looking at the future because almost everything that has to do with space has come from people from this state. And I think that, again, sitting in, 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 at night in the dark sky watching it, you know, this is where the dreams come from. And so our rocket people, I mean, you can look at how many of our rocket people are West Virginians who have come from here. They said, well, some want to be an engineer, some want to be poets. You need both. If we're going to go to Mars, you're going to need both. That was poet, activist, and author Nikki Giovanni speaking with reporter Liz McCormick in 2015. Since then, Giovanni was awarded the Library of Virginia's Literary Lifetime Achievement Award and the Maya Angelou Lifetime Achievement Award. She's also published more books and an album, The Gospel According to Nikki Giovanni. She's got more planned, too, including a book about her childhood. Things have changed for Liz McCormick, too. She got married a while ago and is just back from her long-delayed honeymoon. Congratulations, Liz. Till next time. Thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Jesse Milnes, Little Sparrow, Morgan Wade, Chris Stapleton, and Johnny Stats. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.